Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, a few books past the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We've started a journey through this book just a few weeks ago. where Paul expounds, exposits the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby the righteousness of God is revealed through faith and given as a gift to those who will trust in Jesus Christ. And after celebrating the good news of life in Christ and God's righteousness given to us in that way, He turned a corner in the passage we looked at last week, beginning in verse 18, and began to speak about the wrath of God. We saw last week, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so, while the theme of the book of Romans is good news, you can't really appreciate the good news for what it is until you've really come to understand and grasp the bad news, the predicament that human beings are facing apart from God's intervention. And so he begins a pretty lengthy depiction of human depravity and rebellion and brokenness and God's response to our rebellion. In the verses that follow that passage that we'll begin looking at today, Paul demonstrates to us the chilling reality of God's wrath and how it is that it is revealed uh, among fallen human beings presently in this age, right? We observed that last week. It doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. It says it is revealed. So the wrath of God is a present reality, and he begins to unfold for us how that is. I believe the apostle's burden in this passage is to show us the rotten fruit of our idolatry. That's really what he's aiming to do here, to show us the rotten fruit of human idolatry. And in the course of showing us this rotten fruit, he will address some particular behaviors among fallen humankind that aptly demonstrate the idolatrous exchange that we have made. These behaviors could broadly be categorized as sexual immorality, But he places specific emphasis in these verses upon homosexuality or same-sex sexual behaviors. In fact, Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, resides upon a short list of Bible texts that are sometimes pejoratively referred to as clobber passages. As in, Christians sometimes clobber people with these passages in order to defeat them in an argument or just generally make them feel bad about themselves or whatever the case may be. I'll simply say at this juncture that no portion of God's word should ever be weaponized to cause harm or shame to somebody, and no one here is interested in any clobberings today in any sense, except insofar as each of us occasionally needs a clobbering from the Lord directly because we're all a bunch of knuckleheads, right? And so that's a brief word of disclaimer here, but let's go ahead and read these verses. So Uh, I'm going to start in verse 16. That won't be what we focus on today, but for the the sake of the flow of thought and the context, I'm going to start in verse 16 and read down through verse 28. 
So I'm going to read verses 16 through 28, and then we'll zoom in just a little bit. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, in honor of God's word, to stand with me as I read. Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, excuse me, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the word of the Lord. Take your seats. Thank you. You can see why, perhaps, these verses in the hands of an overly zealous messenger may have the effect of clobbering someone who disagrees. Paul has minced no words, and it is a countercultural prophetic word, to be sure. While Paul's purpose in discussing homosexuality is, as I think you'll see, to illustrate mankind's descent into darkness in our attempt to escape God, you'll of course be aware, nevertheless, that that homosexual relationships have come to be widely approved of and celebrated in our society. Indeed, even in the churches of Jesus across the Western world, they have come to enjoy a certain amount of tolerance and been the beneficiaries of some creative, revisionist, interpretive efforts set on making the Bible seem to not really be saying what it plainly says. In fact, our world is so mixed up on this topic, and other ones closely related to it, and God's people are so bombarded with the world's messaging 
that I've thought it worthwhile to slow down a bit at this point and not breeze too quickly past these verses, lest we miss an opportunity to understand the mind of God on this matter. But I do so with slight hesitation, not because I'm afraid of speaking about it, but because I don't want to leave you with the impression that homosexuality in particular, or even sexual immorality in general, is the main point of this passage of Romans. It's not. Paul doesn't bring up homosexual sin because it's a hobby horse or something, or because his hide is just really chapped by it and he's got to take every opportunity to put the LGBT community on blast. That's not what Paul is doing. Homosexual sin is functioning in a certain way in these verses, aiming to advance Paul's argument. And I want to be sure that we don't miss how that's the case, because it's easy to get bogged down in the details, in the weeds here, and lose sight of the picture that he's painting for us. So here's my plan for today and next Sunday. Today I want to walk you through the logic of the passage, like the argument that Paul is making and what he means by what he says and what it means for us. And then next week I want to revisit the Garden of Eden and consider the nature of human sexuality as designed by God in creation and how it is that our world's sexual ethics so flagrantly miss the mark of human flourishing. So in a way, today's message, where we're zeroing in on Romans 1, 22 through 28, is a statement, and the next week's message is context, if you want to think about it that way. So we turn to the flow of this passage, and uh, I'm going to show you a picture that I I hope will help you understand how this passage is structured. Paul helpfully Uh, wisely, brilliantly, perhaps from a literary perspective, structures this passage uh, in a very uh, clear way where there's a three-step cycle that's repeated three times. And so on the screen behind me, there ought to be a picture for you that illustrates this. There's a three-step cycle that repeats itself three times from verses 22 to verse 28. And the first step is this. We choose the creature over the creator. We make a choice. We choose what is created over the creator himself. The second step in the cycle is that God gives us up to our choice. If that's what you want, you may have it and all that comes with it. And then the third step is after God has handed us over, given us up to that idolatrous choice, we express our disordered worship in disordered living. So rather than worshiping the creature, or the creator, we've chosen to worship the creature. And God gives us over to that choice and its implications, and more and more we spiral downward into this disordered living because our worship is disordered. That's where it all starts. So there's the passage, the the cycle. I'll leave that up there for a little while in case you want to write that down. But I would want to demonstrate for you as we go through these verses how this cycle is repeated and indeed sort of intensified as, as it goes along. So cycle number one, we see in verses 23 and 24. He said in verse 22 that claiming to be wise, they became fools. Who is the they in this passage? It's human beings who looked at the evidence of God in our conscience and in creation and turned away from it and chosen the creature rather than 
the creator, which is the plight, which is the predicament of all human beings until God intervenes, all right? So at some level, this is true of every one of us. So we choose the creature over the creator. Verse 23, it says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so there's step one in the cycle, this first cycle. We choose the creature over the creator. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and even lesser things than man, birds and animals, and then all the way down to reptiles, some translations say. And we looked at this verse last week. We don't need to belabor it. But the point is we don't want the glory of God. right? We want the glory of man or animals or creeping things. And this points out to us that our fundamental problem is a worship problem. We have replaced God with created things in our worship. That's what this is all about. The Westminster Catechism, the classic Reformed Presbyterian uh, statement of faith says, the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why is man created? What's the main purpose of human beings? And the answer is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, in response to question one of the Westminster Catechism, the people in Paul's mind in this passage would say, no thanks. I have no intention of glorifying God or enjoying him. I'm doing fine on my own. I prefer the creature and the creation. I prefer indeed my own glory and pleasure and honor over the creators. And so we have a worship problem before we have anything else. So you can see there, step one in the cycle, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. And so God's response to that is seen in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Tom Schreiner speaking about uh, this giving up of sinners into their sins uh, says that, that there are many who argue that this is an impersonal outworking of laws that God put in place, which is a little bit deistic. The deists say God made the world, wound it up like a, like a watch, and then sort of stepped away. And what unfolds just unfolds, and he's not directly involved with any of it. And there are those who say that God's giving over of people here is just a total natural consequence thing. Well, if, okay, you're going to do this thing, that's going to lead to that, and that's okay. But the passage actually points to something more than that, right? Back in verse 18 that kicked off this paragraph, we saw the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I believe what we see happening in this repeated God gave them up is the wrath of God being revealed. It's more than just, okay, I'll let you choose what you want and you can have whatever comes of it. It's, there's a, a judgment in the handing over of sinners to their idolatrous choice and indeed the kind of downward spiral. Uh, he says, back to, to Schreiner, he says that um, that idea that this just is an impersonal kind of working out of natural laws doesn't reflect an Old Testament or Jewish view of God's providential engagement with his creation. And then he says this verbatim, 
the consequences that are inflicted because of sin are the result of God's personal decision. The wrath of God then is to be understood in personal terms. Okay? So this, there's more going on here than just a passive removing of restraint. God is actually sort of pushing sinners toward their sin and its consequences. And so God gave them up, and we're told that he gave them up to impurity. That's the, that's the phrase or the term. He says he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, which literally just means uncleanness. But Paul regularly uses uh, the word impurity to refer as a sort of ca- uh, category to uh, sexual immorality. So it's not explicit. The word itself is not explicitly about sexual sin, but this is how Paul frequently uses this term. And given the context of the passage and the progression that we'll see, I think it's plain that that is what he has in mind here, uh, and the parallelism of these three movements. And so Paul certainly has sexual sin uh, in mind when he speaks of the impurity to which God has given up these idolatrous people. Indeed, it's worth noting the progression from this first cycle on through the next two, right? So in verse 24, what he gives people over to is impurity, just this simple kind of umbrella term. He gave them over to impurity. In verses 26 and 27, what they've been handed over to is homosexual shame and dishonor, which is spoken of in a lot more words and some pretty strong terms. And then verses 28 and following, and we didn't read verses 29 down to the end of the chapter yet, but what they've been handed over to is uh, a debased mind that would lead to things that ought not to be done. And then there's the lengthiest vice list in the New Testament in the final verses of Romans chapter 1 that includes all sorts of wickedness. And as we'll see when we get to that passage in a couple of weeks, every single one of us can find ourselves somewhere on that list, probably in more than one place if we're honest with ourselves. And so it gets worse and worse. There's a downward progression and intensifying that happens uh, throughout uh, the, the, the passage. As God hands people over, gives them up to their idolatry. And the result of that, here's step three in the cycle, the result of that is the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He gave them over to impurity. And ESV says, to the dishonoring of their bodies, which makes it sound like it's, they're in the same position, but really they're not. And other translations render it better to say, for or with the result that their bodies are dishonored among themselves. And so they've been given over to impurity by God's judgment. And the result of that is the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The, the word dishonor means to treat with indignity or to insult, to treat disgracefully or to degrade. So I think it's worth noting here that the sexual sin to which God hands people over dishonors themselves. It is a dishonor to their own bodies. It is a disgrace. It is degrading. It treats with indignity the human body that God made for particular purposes. Sexual immorality treats with disdain the bodies which God has made for us. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, we're told, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something strange and mysterious and unique about sexual sin in that it is a degrading of ourselves in a way that other sins may not, may not be. Rob Ventura points out that since pa- people failed to honor God, going back to verse 21, right? They, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So since people failed to honor God, he has now set them loose to dishonor themselves by their sexual immorality. So there's a sort of a cruel irony in that exchange. So you see the cycle played out here then in verses 23 and uh, 24, right? We've exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man. So God gave them over to impurity. That is this broad category of sexual sin. And the result of that is our disordered living, right? In other words, the dishonoring of our bodies through sexual immorality. What's the main observation about this cycle? That mankind has rejected God in favor of idols, and the fruit is rotten. We see this over and over. The second repetition of this three-step cycle is in verses 25 through 27. You can see in verse 25 there, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's the exchange. There's the choice of creature over creator. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I want you to notice something else that it says here. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than, than the creator. So I want you to observe that though people have refused to worship God, they have not ceased to be worshipers. What has changed is the object of their worship. Human beings are worshipers. They were designed to be such by their creator. And if it will not be the creator that they worship, it will be something else. And that is what is happening here. They've exchanged the truth about God for the lie. And the truth about God, I think, being exchanged here is the truth that we're told about in verses 19 through 21, namely the existence and power and deity of God that's revealed in conscience and creation that we talked about last week. And so they've seen God, they've had these evidences of God's power and presence and existence, and instead of worshiping him, they've chosen not to acknowledge him, and they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, the lie that idolaters choose may be false worship, false religion, idolatry itself. It could even more broadly mean just a world without God in it, or so we pretend. It could be that what's been chosen is to live in the world as though God is not real. God has not made this place. God has not made me. I am not accountable to him. I call my own shots. I declare what is right and wrong, and I live as I choose. And so we put our fingers in our ears, and we cover our eyes, and we pretend that God's not really there. Then it could be that that's the lie that we've chosen instead of the truth about God's presence and power and deity. So there's the first step of the cycle. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, choosing the creature 
over the Creator. And secondly, God gives them up to dishonorable passions, to dishonorable passions. That's what we see in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, I think that tells us right there, before we get into the details of what he discusses here, the phrase that he gave them up to dishonorable passions, that has to do with an internal inclination, doesn't it? That has to do with a desire. I think that tells us that sin, and perhaps particularly sexual sin, must be seen as more of a matter than physical expression, but actually of inward desire. Right? The passions themselves are dishonorable. Before there is a sin of commission, there is a sin of intention. That seems to be something that is implied here. And that, that lines up with what Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? I tell, you, know, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, what? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. Right? So sin starts before the act itself. Sin starts somewhere in the realm of desire, dishonorable passions. And don't forget the high honor with which man was created, right? We heard it earlier in Psalm 139 that man has been crowned with glory and honor in creation, right? God called his creation very good. Man and woman bore God's divine image, but now we've stooped to passions which themselves heap dishonor upon us and others. Theologian Tom Holland says this, When man is left to the imaginations of his heart, with no conscience restraining him, he becomes like one of the animals. In so doing, he destroys his unique dignity. Man without God is a creation without purpose, meaning, and morality. In exchanging the truth of God for a lie, man has devalued himself and is no longer the noble being that God intended him to be. Instead, he has become a prisoner of sin. Now, it is true and fundamental and first that this sinful behavior and pursuit and dishonorable passion is a dishonor to God. And that is, again, our first and fundamental problem. It's a worship problem. It's an idolatry problem. But it is also, and we need not miss this, it is also a sin against ourselves. It is a dishonoring of our own high stature with which God has created us. So we've exchanged the truth for the lie. Step two, God has given us over to these dishonorable passions. And step three, the disordered way that our disordered worship is expressed, they exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. And here's where the verses that specifically address homosexual behavior come into play. Again, they're playing a role, a function in Paul's argument here. So here's where the impurity of verse 24 starts to get spelled out more clearly. Interestingly, he starts with women. He, the first thing he says is women exchange natural relations, right? And then he proceeds to men, saying they are consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Now, what he means by this natural, the language of natural relations, and then the corollary of that, what is contrary to nature, what he means by that is, namely, what human bodies were designed for. The nature here is not 
an individual's subjective inclination or orientation, but the objective sexual functions which God created human bodies to perform. When God made man and woman, male and female, in the garden, in his image, he had a particular purpose in mind for how those bodies would work and be used and how those relationships would function. And here, when he says that women and men have, re have rejected, exchanged, he uses that word again, have exchanged the natural relations for what is contrary to nature, what he means is we have rejected God's design, which makes sense if what's at the root of all of this is an idolatrous exchange. We've gotten rid of God and we've celebrated the creature and the world and ourselves. And so it makes sense that we would then also disdain the order with which God created not just the world, but human beings and sexuality in particular. You remember back in Genesis 2, 24, we're told, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's something unique and particular that's going on in that design that is specifically inverted in homosexual sexual relations. Sam Albury, who himself is a, uh, a Christian who uh, wrestles with same-sex attraction, and has written and spoken bravely and, and helpfully on this topic. Sam Albury says this, This shows why it is not true for those with same-sex attraction to say, but God made me this way. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not of how God has made me. I've said it this way before. Perhaps you were born this way, but if so, you've inherited it from, not from your father, God, but from your father, Adam. We all experience innate desires and inclinations which are contrary to God's righteousness. Not because God has made us with those inclinations, but because our nature is fundamentally distorted by sin. And so these dishonorable passions that lead to these same-sex relations are broken, disordered desires that must be submitted to the lordship of Christ, just like every one of our innate, fallen, distorted desires. One commentary says, the focus on sexual sins should not surprise us. If God made humankind in his own image, male and female, then humankind's rejection is bound to lead to the undermining of these primary relationships. Homosexuality is named, therefore, not because it is a greater sin than any other, but because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. Isn't that plain? This is what God designed human beings to be and how they're to function, how they're to relate to one another, how their bodies are even complementary to one another and compatible with each other. And because we've rejected God, we've rejected his order. We've rejected his design. We've reversed it because it seems good to us. And that's not to say that every individual who has same-sex desires or attraction is necessarily intentionally rejecting God. That's a sort of categorical social category there where as a people, as a 
society, right? We have turned away from God, and these are the results, right? That these varied internal inclinations that are distorted and disordered all come about and find expression. So again, the banner over all of this, we have rejected God in favor of idols, and the fruit is rotten. And that's where homosexuality comes into play in this passage, as a demonstration of our rejection of God and the reversing of his design, because we have disdain for him. And the third cycle, the third repetition of this cycle is occurs uh, down in verses 28, really through verse 32, although we're probably not going to read all of that today. But if you look at verse 28, you'll see the first step in our cycle again. Verse 28, excuse me, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, stop, all right? It doesn't use the same language. He doesn't use the word exchange like he did earlier of, of both of our exchange of the glory of God for the images and the exchange of the truth for the lie. And then in that particular sort of expression of sexual uh, brokenness, uh, how women and men had exchanged the natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. So it doesn't use the same language here, but it's clearly in the, the parallel structure playing that role. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. In other words, they did not see fit to hold God in their knowledge. I think one English translation renders it that way. So we just forgot God, right? We pretended he doesn't exist. Not worth recognizing him, acknowledging him, seeing ourselves as in any way related to or accountable to him. So they did not see fit to acknowledge God. There's the exchange. We've chosen creature over creator. Give me the world without God in it. Step two in the cycle, God gave them up. God gave them up to a debased mind, a debased mind. Schreiner again points out a wordplay here. It says that those who did not see fit to keep God in their knowledge have been handed over to an unfit mind, right? An unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. So once again, we've exchanged the truth about God. We've exchanged his glory, his power, his presence, his rule for what is created. Give me the world without God in it. And so he gives us over to an unfit mind. We've seen some of the unfit mind earlier in where we, we saw that they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, etc. So God gave them up to a debased mind. With the result, we're told at the end of verse 28, to do what ought not to be done. And that's a very broad statement. And it is the category that resides over the longest vice list in the New Testament. You can see just a few examples of it there. They were filled with... All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. It's one of my favorites. People are creative about sin. We come up with new and crazy ways to reject and dishonor God, don't we? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He's given us over to an unfit mind 
to do what ought not to be done, namely all of this, all manner of unrighteousness and wickedness and evil. This is who we are now because of our futile minds and our darkened hearts. This is how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So three times in those verses, 22 to 28, you see this three-step cycle repeated. We've chosen the creature instead of the creator. God gives us over to our idolatrous choice, and then we express our disordered worship through disordered living in all kinds of various ways, and especially when in sexual immorality. That's a harrowing picture. It's a dangerous place to reside. It's the condition of human beings apart from God's intervention in Christ. Let me summarize before I wrap up. We have a worship problem, right? We've replaced the creator with the creature. As a result, by God's judgment, we have become a deeply disordered people, which is most plainly evident in rampant sexual immorality, which is broad and varied, by the way. There are all kinds of ways to sin sexually against God's design and against what he's ordered for us, and not a single one of us is untainted by it. It's very easy to look down your nose at somebody who struggles in a way that you don't, but not a single one of us is unbroken when it comes to sexual morality. Paul spotlights homosexuality here because it so aptly illustrates his argument. So same-sex intercourse is a perfect representation of the exchange that people have made for God. They've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And men and women now exchange natural, that is according to God's design, sexual relations for the exact reverse. In other words, in our idolatry and rebellion, we have turned God's world completely upside down. There's a study note in my ESV study Bible that says three times Paul says God gave them up. In every instance, the giving up to sin as a result of idolatry, the refusal to make God the center and circumference of all existence, so that in practice, the creature is exalted over the creator. Hence, all individual sins are a consequence of the failure to prize and praise God as the giver of every good thing. What is our fundamental problem? It's a worship problem. It's an idolatry problem. We prefer ourselves over God, plain and simple. And so God gave us up. But please notice, God did not give up on us. It's not the same. God has given us over to our sin and idolatry, but he has not given up on us. In fact, that passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that I uh, quoted from earlier about how sexual, the one who sins sexually sins against his own body, in that same context, there's a, there's a list of, uh, of sins and a distorted living that, that Paul mentions there. I'm going to read some of it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news, isn't it? But here's the good news. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is healing. There is washing. There is redemption in Jesus Christ. No matter what brokenness you've carried or perpetrated, no matter what rejection or exchange you have committed against the glory of God, there is hope in Christ. The very next chapter in Romans tells us that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. He's patient, even while the world spurns him in this way, even while his creatures, who he made in his image for his own glory, reject him and mock him and belittle him and demean him all the while. He is patient. He is waiting. He is withholding judgment. Why? So that we might come to repentance. That's he's after the gospel is still the power of god for salvation even for those who are wallowing in the muck of human sin and degeneracy there is hope and redemption in christ i don't know where you are as you hear this message this morning maybe you've been visiting our church for a while you disagree with just about everything i've said today and you're wondering maybe this isn't the right church for me after all. If that's you, thank you for being here. I'm really, truly glad that you're here, and I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll give us a chance to dialogue about this together, explore this together. These are important things. Maybe you agree with what I've said, but this issue hits pretty close to home because of a loved one who's living a different lifestyle, and you have no idea how to navigate it. Hang in there. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't tune out. Let's seek God's wisdom together about how to love your friend or family member the way God is calling you to. Maybe you're a member of this church already, but you privately wrestle with same-sex attraction or some other sexual sin, and you haven't told a soul about it because you're afraid that you'll be misunderstood or kicked aside. I'm so glad you're here. This is the exactly right place to struggle. And there are dozens of people in this room and in this church body that want to help you, love you, encourage you, support you. You're in the right place. Wherever you are, remember this. The righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel is a gift that he gives you by faith. Don't let your sin keep you from coming to him in repentance and trust. He has not given up on you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart for your people. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth and to warn us of your wrath. 
speak to us, penetrate the darkness of our minds, the futility of our thinking, the moral corruption of our own hearts, that we might know what we're hearing is you. And give us the grace to respond to your voice with repentance and faith and obedience for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.